You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's Domecast from the NNO and NC Insider. I'm Lauren Horse, your host for the week, and I'm joined by Will Doran, Andy Spay, and Colin Campbell. And we're going to run down the past, like, two weeks in North Carolina politics. It's been busy, so sorry you haven't heard from us lately. Um, but I think we're going to kick it off with one of the big items that we've seen over the past two weeks, and that is Governor Cooper's proposed budget. Colin and Will were both there to see what the governor wanted. So, you know, what did he throw out? Well, he threw out a lot. Um, I think that probably will come as a surprise to few people that, you know, as a Democrat, he wants to spend a little bit more money than the Republicans have been spending. Uh, Republicans called this a pie-in-the-sky budget. They said, you know, a lot of the stuff Cooper's calling for has no chance of passing politically because they don't think it makes sense financially for the state. Uh, You know, they're proud of their... Uh, record on, you know, being fiscally conservative the past almost decade now. And, you know, obviously the state has uh, had budget surpluses, good growth. So they point to that saying, you know, hey, we've done a fine job without spending a lot of money. Um, But Governor Cooper wants to spend more money on teacher pay. Um, We just saw that North Carolina is now ranked 29th in the nation, uh, still several thousand dollars for the average teacher below the national average. Um, Cooper wants us uh, to get to around average, and he wants us to be the best in the Southeast, um, and said that uh, he proposed this uh, 9% raise for teachers over the next couple of years, which he said would put us on track to to becoming the best in the Southeast and right around the national average. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen in the legislature or not. Uh (laughs) They seem very happy about the new teacher rankings, pay rankings that came out that uh, moved North Carolina up. Uh, yeah, close to the national average, not quite there yet, but yeah, and I mean it is a pretty, pretty significant increase. Uh, you know, when Republicans took control of the General Assembly, I think we were 43rd in the country. We dropped to 47th in the first few years of GOP control, but since then, being at near the bottom at 47th, we've risen to 29th. Um, so they, they're very happy about their record on that, um, and you know. Credit where credit's due. It's it's definitely been rising. We had, I think, the biggest raise in the country in 2014-2015. We've had some other big raises since then. Um, of course, uh, you know, one group that feels slightly left all out in all of this is other state employees. Uh, we saw last year correctional officers and uh, highway patrol troopers got a, a pretty big raise in the budget last year. Um, Governor Cooper wasn't recommending quite as big of a raise for them this year, uh, basically uh, they would all get, uh, or, or most state employees would get around a 500 to $1,000 raise uh, in Cooper's budget, which uh, is a much lower percentage than teachers. So some of them are feeling a little bit left out. Didn't he also have a proposal for school bond construction? Do I remember that correctly? Yes. Um, so the, the school bond has been kind of kicking around. Uh, a year or two ago, some Democrats recommended a $2 billion bond for school construction. Normally, North Carolina local school boards are in charge of construction, but we've been growing so fast and also have had so many local, especially rural counties, struggling economically that we just haven't been able to keep up with school construction. Tons of schools are outdated, overcrowded, 
And so people think that the state needs to step in and help these counties out building some new schools. And that would also, some money would go to the UNC system, community colleges. Um, and so the idea that was proposed by Democrats a couple years ago was $2 billion. Republicans shot that down last year, but then decided that actually that was a bad idea to have shot it down, brought it back. This year, uh, Tim Moore uh, personally introduced, sponsored the bill for it. Um, but then uh, Cooper came out in his budget and kind of upped the ante, said, okay, well, if you're willing to do that $2 billion that we wanted a couple years ago, now I want $4 billion. And so suggested that we should have a $4 billion bond that would also include some money for unrelated stuff to schools for like uh, sewage uh, pipes and you know water extensions to to help out with clean water in some rural areas and, and we should note that last night the house actually passed that uh two billion school bond um so that went through the house i do believe almost unanimously there were maybe a handful of you know some very right-leaning republicans who voted against it um so i think we're going to see a lot of discussion about school construction bonds because the senate also has its own proposal but it doesn't want to use a bond. It instead wants to use the SCIF, which is a certain fund that they can use to, you know, for construction needs, and they have their own legislative way to do that. Um, that's already passed in the Senate, so we're kind of at a stalemate at the moment, figuring out who does what next. Uh, so I wouldn't be-, be surprised if it becomes kind of a bargaining chip when we get to the budget later this spring. Oh, it'll definitely be a bargaining chip. Yeah. That's for sure. Uh, Colin, do you have anything else to add about the state budget? Yeah, um, it was one of the interesting points that I looked at was uh, Cooper's putting a big premium on um, rural spending uh, for rural economic development, um, including uh, what I was interested to note is the first example I've seen since covering governor's budgets uh, for the last few years of uh, uh, earmarks uh, for specific projects in uh, local communities in the governor's budget, which uh, strategically is a smart move. The legislature does this all the time where they uh, hand out money to projects in different legislators' districts. House Speaker Tim Moore, known for passing out big checks to these groups. Um, now in the, the governor's budget, there's uh, a dozens of projects spread across the state, including things like money for the uh, Rockingham Speedway, uh, for some improvements in Kinston, um, a new farmer's market in Washington County uh, building. Uh, So there's a lot of that in there, and it sort of allows him to market his budget throughout the state. And uh, then you can almost put out specialized press releases by county to say, well, the legislature's budget came out, and while the governor wants to give you a new park, uh, the legislature is not going to fund it. So you should be mad at them. Um, so I, that, that was sort of an interesting piece of that um, and something that I, I don't think we've seen before, but uh, sort of makes sense politically to, to have in the budget. Good deal. Well, pay attention. Some Republicans are already using Governor Cooper's budget as a doorstop. Um, So we're a couple weeks, maybe a month or so away from getting the first budget out of the General Assembly. So stay tuned. You never know what we're going to get here. Um, Will, there's been a lot of talk recently about voter ID, but not at the General Assembly in the courtrooms this time. What court cases are we looking at on voter ID right now? We're looking at a couple different court cases. Obviously, one that I think a lot of people know about is uh, the uh, the Wake County judge who overturned uh, two of the constitutional amendments that voters passed last November. Uh, that is now in front of the Court of Appeals. Um, the legislature obviously lost that when the, the initial judge over, overturned the amendments, uh, but they have appealed that to the Court of Appeals. Uh, so we are waiting to see how that goes and, uh, you know, obviously appealing uh, huge constitutional lawsuit is not a quick 
matter. That'll probably be a little while. Is uh, anything quick in the judicial system? Every once in a while, you get a quick <laughs> turnaround. But, you know, then you also have things that drag on for six years. <laughs> I don't think this one will take six years. Um, Let's hope not. Yeah. Um, but then that everyone thinks it's it's still kind of unclear whether or not that amendment actually overturned the actual law of voter ID since the amendment that passed didn't have any specific rules or details it just said we should have voter ID and then there was a separate law that was passed so people think that even though the amendment is gone the law itself is still on the books so there's a separate lawsuit against that um, and I was in court a couple weeks ago uh, in Wake County um, and there's a big hearing on that and the uh, basically the legislature arguing that it shouldn't be in Wake County Court. It should go to this three-judge panel, which is kind of just legal inside baseball on, you know, the different rules of evidence, you know, and burdens of proof and things like that. Um, but that happened uh, yesterday, last night. Uh, the, the Wake County judge that they were arguing in front of a couple weeks ago agreed that it should be in front of a three-judge panel. Um, so now we wait um, for I think it'll actually be kind of the first thing that a uh, new Chief Justice Sherry Beasley does as the uh, the head of the Supreme Court. Uh, that's kind of one of the few specific duties of the Chief Justice here in North Carolina. They pick the judges who get to be on those three judge panels. Um, so well, we'll watch out for who she picks. Yes, there's a, there's a lot going on with voting issues in this state right now. You know, post you know North Carolina ninth congressional district and all that. And one of the things we're seeing change is people's attention to absentee ballots. Um, and so the director of the North Carolina State Board of Elections was actually in the General Assembly yesterday uh, talking with lawmakers about changes to absentee ballots. And Andy had the great distinction of sitting through that meeting. Uh, and so, Andy, what did Kim Strack propose to lawmakers for changes to absentee uh, ballots? You know, she wants to change some of the procedures involved with or the things that you have to do to get an absentee ballot. She also wants to uh, she wants the legislature to beef up uh, punishments for people who break election laws. Um, you say that I have the privilege of being there. Uh, it was actually a short meeting, surprisingly. People didn't have many uh, questions for the most pointed question came from Representative uh, Destin Hall who said that there is an appearance of selective enforcement from uh, investigators at the North Carolina Elections Board. Uh, she said that, obviously, their, their staff is limited, and they... Because they only have, what, four investigators currently? Something uh, like that? I don't know about that. But, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a small number for a state this big. She described her staff as small but busy, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, said there's some validity to the fact, you know, the, the suggestion that, you know, they took up this case because it involved a congressional candidate. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a big race, and it was close. And um, there was evidence, and they'd been watching it since 2016. In fact, uh, one of their suggestions comes from something that they discovered in 2016. Uh, two years ago, they noticed that uh, some people had uh, the wrong date on their when they requested absentee ballots. Now, I should first point out, uh, there is no law requiring people to date their signature when they sign for absentee ballots or when they witness absentee ballots. Uh, but they noticed uh, discrepancies and when people signed the witness, uh, the witness line. Um, 
And so this year they put a dateline on the absentee ballots and again, notice discrepancies and it helped them, uh, you know, determine that there were voting irregularities and people weren't witnessing ballots like they said they were. Um, and so that's one suggestion that she had was to uh, mandate that people put uh, a dateline on all of their absentee ballots and that people sign them uh, and date them when they witness. Um, and of course, witnessing an absentee ballot means you watch someone fill it out uh, in their presence when you're in their presence with them. So that's one thing. Uh, the most popular suggestion she had, though, was to uh, prepay for uh, postage pay for stamps, essentially, uh, for people that request absentee ballots. Uh, you know, on the surface, it's not, uh, at first, I was like, I don't, how does that help? I know, it's not really like a, you, you wouldn't think that, you know, just making sure that someone has a stamp would ensure that they'd vote. You'd think they'd want to vote no matter what. Right. What, she's, what she pointed out, and that a lot of people um, uh, responded positively to, was that uh, if you require people to go buy their own stamps, then that opens the door to political cooperatives to come in and offer help, help, I say with air quotes. Like, oh, I'll go get the stamp right. for you. Like, like oh, give if it to you, me, I'll take the- you know, just fill out one or two races and then I'll fill out the rest and I'll, I'll buy the stamp and uh, take it back to the elections board for you. And she suggested that um, that played a role in the North Carolina 9 uh, investigation, that, that race between Mark Harris and Dan McCready. And so uh, I spoke to David Lewis, powerful Republican in the House, and um, Holly Grange, uh, co-chair of that committee. And uh, they were fully on board with that idea of prepaid postage, which, you know, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. But, you know, anytime someone suggests spending state state money on something, you expect pushback from the most ardent, you know, uh, conservatives. But in this case, there it's people seem... Uh, pretty willing to do what it takes to crack down uh, on election fraud and at least restore confidence in uh, North Carolina's elections. Um, uh, saying that, they, there were a couple other minor things they suggested, but they, they told lawmakers that they need to um, have harsher punishments for people who break election laws. Many of them, especially in reg- that are, are related to absentee ballots, are just misdemeanors. And you covered, you had actually a fact check, I should say. You didn't technically cover, but you had a fact check about other things regarding voting, but this time at the federal level um, about House Resolution 1. So would you fact check? What's up? What's so going down? H.R. 1 was the first bill that Democrats proposed when they gained control of the House in D.C., right? So uh, it does many things. They're all aimed at making voting easier. Uh so Republicans, uh, now being in the minority in the House and still having the majority in the Senate, uh, opposed this bill, saying that uh, it would affect the, judici- <laughs> the election system by uh, opening the door to fraud and protecting Democrats. Now, that's not what I fact-checked. What I, I fact-checked Dan Crenshaw. He's a new— You might remember Dan Crenshaw if you watch SNL a lot. That's right. He (laughs) uh, wears an eye patch and was on Saturday Night Live. Uh, Pete Davidson made fun of him, and then he appeared the following week, Crenshaw did, on SNL to accept Pete Davidson's apology and make fun of him some for his messy life. Um, 
he also enjoys a very large following on social media. He's sort of this new darling of uh, conservatives. Uh, Crenshaw is. Uh, he's a former Navy SEAL. And in response to, a- to H.R. 1, this Democratic bill, uh, he tweeted that H.R. 1 would actually make the kind of fraud in NC9 legal. It would legalize vote harvesting across the entire country and use your tax dollars to do it. Uh, funny thing about this, when we reached out to him at 11 a.m. Monday, he tweeted over the weekend. We reached out at 11 a.m. Monday. At 11.30, he tweeted a clarification. Uh, it's funny how that timing is it, works. Is possible clarification backtracking at all? Or uh, just- he says that HR1, it, it is a little bit of a backtrack. Uh, he said HR1 enables ballot harvesting uh, by mandating no-excuse absentee voting across the country. Uh, both of these claims are false. It is not HR one does not do anything to allow more harvesting. It doesn't have anything to do with forging signatures on an absentee ballot, uh, and it doesn't allow anyone. It certainly doesn't allow anyone to fill out someone else's ballot. Um, so that was a very big stretch. When he mentioned no excuse absentee voting, uh, that is sort of an inconsistent law across the country. Some states have stricter laws and require you to be ill or out of the country or something like that to fill out an absentee ballot. North Carolina is a no excuse state. And so his point is sort of invalid anyway. He said uh, in his second tweet, Democrats rejected our amendment because it would make uh, harvesting illegal. It should be illegal because it allows fraud like in NC9. When he says it, in this case, he was referring to no, no excuse absentee balloting uh but that there's no link in those two people you know sure if there are more ballots going out there are more ballots to steal but they don't have anything to do with each other and hr1 does not certainly does not allow the fraud that we saw in north carolina so we gave him a false well good fact check there oh thanks <laughs> L- love a good false we, rating we every were once in a while. north carolina uh, politifact north carolina was the first group to fact check Dan Crenshaw. So let that be known. Is there a PolitiFact Texas that's slacking? Uh, they are not slacking. They're new. <laughs> there are new fact checkers in Texas. Sorry, sorry, PolitiFact <laughs> Texas. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. No. <laughs> so, Colin, earlier this week, you had a story about some state buildings that were recently voted to be demolished, but there's no plans for once those buildings are gone. What's going on? Yeah, so to give you a frame of reference, so if you're driving into downtown Raleigh on Capitol Boulevard, you come to that very first stoplight at Lane Street, and you see this uh, boarded-up, nasty-looking little one-story brick building, and behind it are two slightly nicer-looking, also boarded-up and falling-down buildings. Um, One of them is the old film library where they stored films and is supposedly not all that historic. Uh, which and then there, behind that is a building that I didn't realize this was most recently used as a state heating plant, uh, but previously was a broom and mattress factory uh, staffed by students at the School for the Blind and Deaf, which was originally uh, also located on that site uh, before it uh, moved out towards uh, Western Boulevard. Uh, and there's also a building called the Oral Hygiene Building, and has in chiseled stone Oral Hygiene Building. So I I did some research on that because I was very curious about this, and apparently this was part of a program in the 1940s to teach kids about 
brushing their teeth and dental health. And there was a dental health museum on the top floor with a marionette puppet show uh, that taught people how to, to brush their teeth. Um, so that was the original use of this building. Yeah, you you go in and marionette puppets. Andy. Yeah, starring a, a character named Little Jack, who I guess needed to learn how to brush his teeth. And so kids on field trips to Raleigh, uh, in addition to going to like the history museum and the science museum and the Capitol building, they would go to the dental health museum, um, which I assume might have been slightly less popular among the kids, but who knows? Um, at any rate, uh, I'm getting a little sidetracked, but the. Uh, Thing with these buildings, they've been vacant for many, many years, um, and the council state voted recently, uh, along with other property matters, to demolish them. So I asked, you know, what, what are they doing with the site? Obviously, this is very um, high-dollar real estate in downtown Raleigh, and the plan is to do nothing. Uh, there are no plans to sell the site or to build on it, so it's essentially going to become a vacant lot, uh, which wasn't always going to be the case uh, back when uh, Pat McCrory was governor and was taking an interest in uh, downtown state properties. He had negotiated a sale for, I think, a couple million dollars uh, of this site to a medical office developer out in Cary who wanted to uh, restore two of the buildings, tear down one of them, um, and build some medical offices. Uh, that sale was put on hold over some concerns that the site itself is part of Caswell Square, which is one of the original public squares in Raleigh, kind of like Moore Square and Nash Square, uh, but has for more than 100 years had buildings on it and hasn't really been any kind of park or square. Uh, but anyway, preservationists were worried about uh, the precedent setting of uh, one of the original squares going into private hands. So the council state delayed the sale, um, and then it never came back up again. Apparently, six months later, after the medical office folks had submitted their latest plans to the governor, they just got a, their deposit back in the mail, and it said uh, the governor has canceled the sale, and they didn't get any explanation at all. Um, I tried to get an explanation. The best explanation the department administration would give me was that uh, the governor is hoping to do a more broad study of downtown property and needs funding from the state budget to do so, which he hasn't gotten yet. So for now, um, the oral hygiene building and the broom and mattress factory will be no more, and you'll be seeing a patch of grass on that commute into downtown Raleigh. It's a commute I take every day, so it'll be a nice change, I guess, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but Colin, you also listened in yesterday to the Senate session when something weird with the rules happened. Uh, so take us through what happened exactly. Yeah, this so happened during a different bill. Yeah, so, so to set the stage, they were debating a bill um, that's designed to let small businesses have easier access to health insurance for their employees. It's uh, called Association Health Plans. And right now, in order to come together with other businesses through a trade group or a chamber of commerce, you have to have, uh, I think, at least 50 employees. This would allow even you know sole proprietorships or somebody with one or two workers um, to band together. And then you get sort of the, the group insurance rates that a larger company would get because you'd have an association with hundreds of people who are covered. Um, so this is uh, sponsored by Republicans. It's touted as a way to help small businesses out, help them be able to more affordably offer health insurance to their employees. Uh, but Democrats uh, thought this bill was an opportunity to uh, promote some uh, much more sweeping health care policies. So uh, one of the first-term senators, Senator Kirk Devier from Fayetteville, um, ran an amendment that basically would have just added in the Medicaid expansion bill that Democrats want to, uh, recently filed into this other bill about small business health care. Um, it was ruled out of order and tabled. Um, Stan Bishop, the Republican senator who sponsored the bill, said he's happy to have the discussion about Medicaid expansion, but not in this completely unrelated so bill. So can you explain to our listeners who might not be super into legislative procedure what it means when an amendment is tabled? Yeah, so uh, this... A person can introduce an amendment, and then if somebody else doesn't want to see a vote on the actual amendment, um, 
they can say, I motion to table this amendment. This amendment may lie on the table, I think is the wording. Mm -hmm. um, and then they take a vote on whether they should continue considering the amendment or whether they should essentially throw it out and move on to the next thing. Um, and so in this case, they took a vote. The vote was on exclusively party lines. Republicans wanted to table this amendment. Democrats did not want to, um, but Republicans have more votes, so it was tabled. Uh, and then people pointed out in the Senate's rule book uh, rule about, 53. Yeah, about what happens to tabled amendments. And apparently uh, the uh, sort of contents of the amendment cannot be considered in any other measure for the rest of the session, according to this rule, unless there's uh, there's some confusion about whether it's a three-fifths or two-thirds vote, uh, but whether there's unless there's a supermajority vote to suspend the rule and bring something back forward. So now Republicans are saying, oh, you guys shot yourselves in the foot because um, now we're going to need a two-thirds majority vote in order to do anything with Medicaid expansion this year if that happens. Oh, well, too bad. I guess we can't consider Medicaid expansion. Sorry, guys. You you know, you know did this to yourselves. It seemed to be the, the argument yesterday. And last night was just like a very good example of how important it is to read your rule book. Now, I know Colin and I spend a lot of time reading both the House rules and the Senate rules, and we live thrilling we, lives. We didn't even really know about this rule. So when it came up on Twitter from a legislative staffer, we were all like, what? So we all went to the rule book, and then um, you could tell the Senate Republicans were gloating because the chief of staff to Phil Berger came down to the basement press room with a pop box of popcorn to uh, share with us and a copy of the rule books and offered to answer any questions we might have about rules. Well, and, and one of the big <laughs> questions, one of the big questions I think we all had was, what happens if a Medicaid expansion bill comes over from the House? Does the Senate take that up, or would they have to vote to suspend the rules to take that up? And I'm pretty sure they would have to vote to suspend the rules. Yeah, and, and of course, I, I should point out that, practically speaking, if the Senate does agree to take up Medicaid expansion, what's probably going to have to happen before that happens is that Phil Berger gets at least half of his Republican caucus on board because he's generally unwilling to move a bill that doesn't have at least 50% of Republicans backing him up. Um, so if that happens, then you probably do have a supermajority in support of Medicaid expansion. So it sort of becomes the, the rules become a little bit of a moot point if we get to that point. But for now, this becomes sort of a rhetorical point of Republicans saying, well, we'd consider your idea, but um, and it allows them to sort of deflect onto the rules, which Democrats are not too thrilled by and don't really like that line of reasoning. I'm curious to know, do you think there's any benefit to if you're Phil Berger and you don't uh, want Medicaid expansion, what's the benefit of doing it? I mean, maybe it's you think Democrats would be more as mobilized next year as they were this past year to get people out to the polls. I mean, why, why would he do it? Well, I think what this is going to come down to, um, and I think we've Phil Berger has signaled pretty consistently, he's had multiple press releases over the past few weeks making the case why Medicaid expansion in his mind is a bad idea. Uh, but it's going to become a bargaining chip come budget time. Um, the governor has all but admitted that he plan will refuse to sign a budget that doesn't include Medicaid expansion. Um, so I think we're he's pretty much come out and directly said in his budget press conference that we're in for a long year um, if they don't come around to his way of thinking. Um, so what you could see, and I, I should point out for folks who don't know North Carolina government that, that well, we won't have a government shutdown. So that's one piece of good news in this. But we will have, uh, you know, if we get to July 1 and we don't have a budget, um, there will be no spending of additional revenues beyond what's in the old budget. 
Um, so if there's a debate about teacher raises and everybody agrees that we should raise teacher pay, teacher pay ain't gonna get raised until we have a budget uh, that passes. Um, and so we could be here for months and months uh, waiting for some level of agreement between the governor and the Republicans in the legislature. It's gonna be an exciting year. Um, we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back, we're gonna do a headliner of the week for Pi Day. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? Welcome back to Domecast, the political podcast from the NNO and NC Insider. Um, we're going to do the headliner quick. So let's start with Andy, since I'm looking directly at him. Who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to go with Nancy McFarlane. I know she's not in state politics, um, but she's played a role uh, in recent years um, that I think is underappreciated in Raleigh. She's announced this week that she's not going to run for re-election. I think it would be her fifth term or sixth term. Either way, she's been there almost 10 years. Uh, and I, you know, covered her closely uh, when I uh, reported on the Raleigh City Council. And she's always been interesting to me because she's uh, not a registered Democrat or Republican. And yet, you know, leads this largely liberal city and uh, which contains the legislature and which is largely Republican. And so she's had to walk a fine line while governing her city. Um, and I think that, you know, she's maintained a relatively good relationship with them, unlike, you know, her counterparts down in Charlotte, where they had, what, what's her name? I don't even remember anymore. Jennifer Roberts. Yeah, Jennifer Roberts. Where is she now? She uh, lost her seat. But, you know, that whole HB2 and all that stuff started with a bickering between Charlotte and uh, Republicans in the legislature and, you know, uh, evolved into that huge debacle. And... Uh, Nancy mostly stayed out of the spotlight um, and didn't drag Raleigh into any controversies or any bickering uh, with the legislature. And so um, I, I always found that interesting that she was able to walk that line. And, you know, uh, who knows if we'll ever see a, an independent mayor again. I mean, things are so politi politically divisive and partisan that, you know, from here on out it may be uh, just Democrats or just Republicans. So um, I think a lot of people were surprised by her announcement uh, because it, it came out of nowhere, I think it was yesterday morning, um, and no, no one knows what happens next. There's no clear heir apparent. Um, so for that, uh, all, all those reasons, uh, Raleigh's mayor, outgoing mayor Nancy McFarland is my uh, headliner. With Nancy McFarland in the hat for headliner of the week, I'm going to throw it over to Will. Who's your headliner? We can go with daylight saving time. Uh, we saw yesterday uh, Representative uh, Jason Sane and Kelly Hastings and John Zoka filed a bill that would make daylight saving time permanent. No more remembering, it was it, wait, is it spring forward, fall forward, fall back? What do I do with my clocks? No more of that. Just get rid of it, permanent daylight savings time. Um, it's part of maybe a push, Representative Sane was telling me, to kind of do this throughout the entire southeast. Uh, because North Carolina doesn't get to just decide what our clocks say. It has to be approved by Congress. And last year, Florida approved this exact same thing, but Congress has refused 
to let them do it. Um, actually, largely, I learned from the Tampa Bay Times because of lobbying by the TV industry. They think it would Whoa. be too confusing for people, like, okay, well, like, if I live in this state, my program is on at 9, but if I live in that state, it's on at 10. I'm going to say that makes sense as someone who still really doesn't remember what time zone she's in, but continue. Right. <laughs> of course, you know, as we have people cord cutting and, you know, TV, mm-hmm. fewer fewer people watching TV, I don't know how relevant that is anyways. Um, but anyways, uh, big lobbying from the TV industry killed it, but... They think that if they get, you know, maybe North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, you know, kind of this block in the southeast all on board, then it would add some pressure to Congress to uh, to go ahead and do this. Uh, so we'll see if uh, if that goes through. But, you know, if you if you hate having to change your clocks, you'll like that bill. Good deal. Well, I only had to change one clock this year. It was my car. So everything else automatically set. Uh, so daylight savings time in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, last but not least, Colin, who's your headliner? Well, I'm going to play to the judge this week and go with the story that you wrote, Lauren. Uh, and so my pick this week is Hillary Cooper, whose uh, last name you may recognize because she is the daughter of Governor Roy Cooper. Uh, Governor Cooper appointed her back in December to the Domestic Violence Commission, uh, which is uh, it's not a paid position, uh, but it does come with uh, per diem, uh, deals with some advisory issues related, obviously, to domestic violence. Um, and the appointment took place back in December, but was never formally announced in these long list of uh, appointments that the governor puts out every month. Uh, but Lauren, you stumbled upon uh, her role in this position and had some questions about it. So you started asking the governor's office and they uh, filled you in on that. Um, and then uh, a day after you asked questions, suddenly we get a press release uh, that announces that Hillary Cooper is appointed to this commission that she was actually appointed to uh, back in December. So sort of in honor of Sunshine Week and uh, reporters asking the questions that need to be answered about um, politicians appointing their family members to things, um, I'm going with Hillary Cooper as my pick. As much as I want to pick that, because, you know, it was my story, I feel like that would be a little bit unethical of me. Would it be a little bit of nepotism, you think? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but I'm actually going to go with uh, Andy to win Headliner of the Week for Nancy McFarland, because all politics are local. So little shout out to local politics and Raleigh City Council. So for Will Doran, Andy Spay, Colin Campbell, I'm Lauren Horsch. Enjoy the rest of your Pi Day and have a good weekend. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 